Well, welcome back to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 15 today. So grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 15. We're going to be reading together verses 1 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, underneath the center aisle of seats are a couple Bibles on top of each other. You're welcome to, to use that. Have it as your own Bible if you don't have one. And uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, should be around 580-something. I'm not exact, but it'll be close to that. Um, our tradition is we read these scriptures out loud together, and so uh, they'll be on the screen, or you can read your app. Uh, but hopefully you brought your Bible with you, and uh, we'll be referring back to this throughout the sermon today. John, chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. A very familiar passage of scripture. Let's read together. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as your church. We thank you for this, just the beautiful words of, of Jesus as he is uh, encouraging and teaching uh, those who were closest to him, these disciples that would in in very many days, um, start the church and change the world. God, we pray that these words would uh, penetrate our hearts, that it would um, form, inform us of your intention for us, but more importantly, Lord, that, that through these words we would be encouraged to pursue you more and that it would somehow change us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So many of you, uh, some of you probably know, I, I went to West Point, and uh, honestly, I, I wasn't an academician. Uh, I went to West Point probably more out of leadership potential. Um, 
which is, you know, West Point was trying to create Army officers, so uh, I had a little potential to do that, and I'm uh, happy to have served the years that I served. And so, I'm, honestly, academics was, was a chore for me. Some of it was hard. Um, I don't remember a lot about a lot of my courses, but there's one course that I remember nothing of except for one thing. Uh, thermonuclear dynamics. Any of y'all smart people ever take, took that course? I got one person in this whole room that took thermo. Uh, check it out. I don't. I don't blame you. I would. I would steer straight. I would like no go. I wouldn't go anywhere near thermo these days. Um, I don't remember a lot from thermonuclear dynamics. I don't remember anything actually except for one thing: the second principle of of uh, of thermo. And this is it. Things fall apart. You, you impressed? <laughs> That's it. That's all I remember. And you know, this is a semester-long course. And I got like a, I went into the final with a high D, and I think I squeezed out a C minus. So um, that's it. That's all I remember. Things fall apart. Our world moves from order to disorder. There's a principle of decay that eats away at everything in life. That's what Thermo taught me. Um, and tell you what, the older you get, the more you realize this. I, I mean, we got a young congregation, and y'all are the type of people that would say, you know what, let's go out and buy a boat. I mean, think about all the things we could do with a boat. We could go fishing. We could uh, take that boat and uh, get some jet skis and just go out and have a good time. But once you get older, like my age and su or, or such, you think, like, I mean, why in the world would I want a boat? I mean, I mean, why would I want to put up with the labor of that boat? I mean, who's going to keep up with the maintenance? Who's going to pay the taxes for that boat just sitting in my driveway? I got a better idea. Why don't we just go find, find a friend that has a boat? <laughs> this principle is important because if you don't understand that all of creation is subject to, to decay, uh, you really will be frustrated. The reality is our world is like a river rowing in in one direction. And that direction, it's not, it's not winding up, it's winding down. That river is going towards, towards destruction, towards decay. So here's my point. If, if we want to be people who change and exact positive growth in our lives, then most of our lives, we are going against the flow of everything else around us. The world is winding down. That means we, we, are, we are prone to do those kind of things that would take us down that same stream. And so to, to have any kind of positive change in your life requires a little bit of work. That's why it's easy to spend money that you don't have. Y'all ever thought about that? Why is it so easy to spend money? Because everybody's doing that. It's hard not to do that. That's why it's so much harder to lose 10 pounds than it is to gain 30. I gained about 15 in January, and it's taken me all, I mean, it's like six months, and I still haven't lost all that stuff yet. You ever wonder why we, uh, we're, uh, uh, one of our friends might gain some weight, and you, you, know, I mean, you don't say anything to him. He's like, uh, you, do you know you're gaining weight? But one of our friends loses about 10 pounds. like, what in the world did you do? You look great. Most of us have things about ourselves that we wish were different, that we wish we could change. I don't know what it is for you. Perhaps it's a relationship that's gone bad. Uh, perhaps it's an attitude, pride, lust, um, unforgiveness issues. Maybe it's your, your money is funny and you can't get it right. Whatever it is about yourself that you want to change, the reality is for most of us that have, had have tried to change in any way, that, that are desperate for it to happen, you find out as, as you try to start changing your life, I mean, it's hard. It's hard work and it's hard to to make that change actually happen. I think that's why the self-help market in our country is, is what it is. It's a billion dollar industry. Yeah, I mean, you all realize that? And it's not that the self-help market is bad. 
You can learn about your finances and you can learn about uh, positive things, about leadership and stuff like that. But here's the thing about self-help. Self-help, um, it doesn't change you at the deepest level. It, it might put a facade on you. You might learn a few principles, a few steps to do something um, that might better you as a person. But but think about this. Self-help doesn't it doesn't make a greedy person become generous. Self-help can't can't make a prideful person become humble. Self-help doesn't make a person who is wallowing in self-pity become a servant. Self-help can't do any of those things. How does a vain person become free from their self-absorption? I think these are the questions that we wrestle with in life. I mean, how can I change from some of the deep-seated things that are in me that I desperately want to get out, but I just don't know how? And I think we'll answer that question in John 15. John speaks um, in this passage. He speaks uh, of two things. He's going to tell us about fruit and he's going to tell us about love. And he tells us about fruit and love by telling us a parable. And and then he's going to give us a command. He tells us a parable and then he's going to give us a command. When the Bible speaks of fruit, it's talking about positive change, stuff, uh, change, not just you putting on makeup and, and giving yourself a different facade. It's changed from the from the inside out. Many of you are familiar with Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter five, Paul says the fruit of the spirit are. And then he goes and, and lists a, li- uh, a, a, a list of them. They, these aren't all of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Did I get all of them. I think I got all of them. Not in order. These aren't all of the fruit of the spirit, but Paul is saying these are character traits, things that we want inside of us that would change how life manifests itself um, to others um, a little bit differently. We want these things, at least we should want these things. But how do you get them? I mean, how do you get that stuff on the inside of you so that so that you live it out, out loud before the people about you. And of course, when the Bible talks about love, it's talking about the great redeeming work of Jesus, of how he loves us to the point that he'd be willing to give up our life. And this is what scripture says about love. It says that as we've seen Jesus love, we're to do as he, as he did. And so what I, this is the question I want you to, to sort of process as we're talking about John 15. Where do we get the power and what is the process for change? You know, the, the temptation is this is a this is a um, familiar passage. Many of you have heard these words before. Perhaps you've memorized some of this uh, as a navigator. That's how I came to faith uh, at West Point. Um, I remember uh, memorizing, you know, John five, uh, John 15, five. That's um, in a little uh, memory scripture memory pack. Um, and so we can memorize some of these things. And these these popular verses can can just go over our head instead of penetrating us. And exacting change. And I think what God wants to do for us today is it's like make this really practical. Um, and this 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 chapter is talking about change, uh, lasting change. So let's read uh, verse verse one again. One through five. I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit. I'm sorry. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. A lot of times we ask the question, I mean, what's Christianity about? 
And I think what John is doing is what Jesus is doing, John is capturing, is giving us a little glimpse of what Jesus says, this is what Christianity is about. And it's about verse five. Look at verse five. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the context of, of Jesus saying all these words is, He's 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 told the disciples, these people that were very close to him, I'm about to leave. The the father's purpose and plan for me is about to come to fruition. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. And they are a little bit troubled. And so chapter 14, Jesus is calming their fears. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm actually going to prepare a place for you. It's a place called heaven. You can't go there now, but you'll you'll be there later. And it's a place that you deserve to be in. I'll be there and we will exist in eternity together. And then he gives them. He says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. When I leave, I'm going to give you something that will remind you of me. He'll teach you like I've taught you. In fact, he'll be not just with you like I was. He'll be in you. And so in, in chapter 15, John is continuing that thought. In, 15, in chapter 15, he's saying, this is how you live life after I've, I've left the earth. He's trying to calm their fears and, and help them know that, hey, I'm going to be absent from you in the body, but I'm going to give you the spirit. And this is appropriate for us. Think about it. The, the total existence of our life, as you've known the Jesus of the Bible is you haven't known him bodily. You've known him by his spirit. And so he, he's saying this is really how you how you live this life in me, but without me being there physically with you. And what he does is he gives him a parable. And the parable is God's the father. He's the, God. The father's a gardener. Uh, uh, the, the text, the ESV uses vine dresser. Think of it as a, a farmer, somebody that tends a farm. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches, and this is what he's calling us to. He's calling us to abide in him. Jesus said, abide in me. And if you abide in me, you'll produce fruit. You'll have these character traits on the inside of you that will manifest, and, I mean, you'll be a pretty pretty cool person. This is the most important statement that I'll make. Um, don't, don't go to sleep after I say this, but if you get nothing else out of the sermon, this is what this is talking about. The essence of Christianity is to be vitally connected to Jesus. Like a branch is connected to a vine. That's, that's all Jesus is saying. It's about drawing life and strength and nourishment from Jesus, who is the vine, but also realizing that you're a branch. And I don't know if you've checked out any trees in your yard lately. I've got this, uh, this very um, old, large tree in my, in my yard. I think the tree is actually dying because the leaves started um, turning and falling um, before it was even September. Uh, but there's this huge branch that, that fell and it's like stuck in the tree. And I'm, I'm not tall enough to get it out, but that branch is dead. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you're a branch. You cannot exist. Sap won't come through you um, to keep you alive and produce fruit unless you're like linked in, connected, hooked up with me. Verse two. Every branch in me that does not uh, bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And so the, the symbol for ancient Israel was a vine. Um, the Old Testament gives us a picture that Israel was the vine that God expected and desired to, to bear all kinds of fruit, but it, it never came to fruition. 
Um, in fact, so much so that he sent them into exile. They were the vine. They were the, the vine that did not bear fruit. And so uh, really what's going on here to put this in context uh, in chapter 14, verse 31, Jesus has he was in the upper room and they were having a very intimate meal that shared communion together, the very first communion. And uh 1431 says this, rise, let us go. So Jesus, they got up from the upper room and they are walking through Jerusalem. They're headed from wherever they were in the upper room to the Mount of Olives. And that's the the famous place that Jesus will say um, his high priestly prayer for the disciples. That's the place where uh, he'll be arrested and they'll take him from there. And he will only have a few hours left after he goes through a couple of trials before he's nailed to a cross. And so they're en route uh, from this upper room through Jerusalem. And the reason uh, scholars speculate, the reason why Jesus is probably talking about vines is this connection to Israel. Israel was called a vine, uh, the vine that never produced what they were supposed to uh, supposed to produce fruit. But more importantly, they would have seen the temple and the temple was adorned with all kinds of of symbols of a vine, because, of course, Israel was supposed to be this vine. Verse two is I mean, he starts out this parable with a warning. And it's kind of a, a, a scary warning. And this this verse has really caused a lot of anxiety in the church. Most of us read this verse and we think, I mean, can a Christian lose their salvation? Is there a is there a quota of fruit that I should be producing so that I don't get cut off by Jesus? And uh, if you've been in the church for more than two days, you know that there's a lot of different thoughts in regards to um, how we apply this this verse here. Um we can't go through all of them, but I think context is key. First of all, Jesus has told us throughout John that um, God, once we once we trust Jesus, once we come to faith in him, um, he calls us his children. He welcomes us to himself. He adopts us into his family. God, God is like the, the shepherd that has sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. So uh, very likely Jesus isn't going to in verse in chapter 14 say, hey, don't be troubled. Uh, I'm preparing a place for you. And then in the very, you know, let his very next words be, I'm going to cut you off if you don't if you don't produce some fruit. That's probably not the case. Um, if you trust Jesus, Jesus is not going to cut you off. Uh, that is to say, if you have truly been a child of God, saved by the blood of Jesus, um, there's no threat here of losing your salvation. I think in context, Jesus is referring to Judas. If you think about this, Judas is no longer in the picture. The 12 disciples have become the 11. Judas has run off. And at the same time that they're walking through Jerusalem, headed to the Mount of Olives, Judas is is turning his back on Jesus and he's getting ready to betray Jesus for 30 simple pieces of silver. And so Jesus is saying here in life, there's people who will be like Judas. Think about Judas. Judas, it seemed like he was in Christ. It seemed like he was part of the group. I mean, he was the money. I mean, he's the guy that that was the treasurer of the group. He probably had a more important position amongst those 12 disciples than than all of them, even Peter and and John. Judas appeared to be a branch connected to a vine. Like the other disciples, Jesus, Jesus, uh, Judas had been called by Jesus. He had walked intimately with Jesus for at this point, at least three years. And so from an outward perspective, it looked like Judas had the same kind of relationship that all the other disciples had. But here's the deal. Judas, 
his connection to Jesus was just cosmetic. There was nothing beyond the, the fake facade of, of friendship and intimacy. It was superficial. It wasn't vital and integral. And we know that because Judas didn't produce any fruit. Think about it. I mean, at, after this, Judas eventually goes. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. And from the other Gospels, we know that um, Judas, uh, I mean, he just gets mega guilty. And he hangs himself on a plot of land that he buys with that, that wicked money. So instead of faithfulness and courage, the fruit that Judas produced was betrayal and abandonment. And so this is a warning. It's a warning to these disciples as Jesus prepares to leave them. And he's leaving you know, them to, to carry on with life in the world without him. But I think it's a word for us as well. And the warning is, is, is simply this. Jesus is saying there's a difference between us being familiar with Jesus and us having faith in Jesus. He's saying there's a difference between being familiar with Jesus and thinking that you thinking that you know who Jesus is and going through the motions of that, but actually participating in life with Jesus, him giving you life that would allow you to be uh, a branch connected to a vine that produces fruit. There's a lot of people that are familiar with Jesus. Um, Think about the people that, you know, perhaps you're one of them. You've gone to church. Um, you, you might have had some kind of spiritual experience. You may have raised your hand, walked an aisle, signed your name to the cart, uh, saying, yeah, uh, you know, verifying that you've had a salvation experience with Jesus. And Jesus is basically saying here, it's possible to do all kinds of things for God and yet not be more familiar with him than you are a participation in the life that only he can give. And this is worth some introspection. That's that's all it's saying. You need to think about this. You should ask yourself simply this. Do I ever participate with life with God? Do I just go through the motions? Do I see any fruit of the spirit in my life? These are hard questions to ask, but they are vital ones. Just as Jesus gives a warning, um, the, the emphasis here is this idea of pruning. I, I'm not a farmer. I know nothing about farming. I've seen it from a distance, but there is YouTube. You can, know, you can learn anything on YouTube, right? So I YouTubed this dude talking about his, uh, his vineyard, and he was showing what it looks like to actually prune a vine. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty impressive stuff. And so um, here's the thing to note. You, you're, you're really, when you're pruning, you're pruning branches that are fruitful. They're, they've, they're already producing fruit, and you're cutting back on them so that they would be more fruitful. So keep that in mind as I, as I talk through this. Here, here's pruning. It's the selective removal of parts of a plant. Its purpose is to remove dead wood, to shape it so that you can control it and direct its growth. And pruning is said to improve uh, improve and maintain the health of a plant. It reduces it from from uh, likely diseases and from, you know, if, it, if it's a large plant from other branches falling on it, it prepares it for the harvest. And most importantly, it, when you prune it, it increases the yield and the quality of the flowers or the fruit. That, that's pruning. Um, but here's here's the hard part. Um, Jesus is applying this principle of, of the father pruning our spiritual lives and and God's got a big pair of shears out and he's like cutting stuff off like I don't know what and he is not I mean he's going for it he's going for it 
And this is what God does when he when he prunes our spiritual lives. He strips away things that are spiritually detrimental, even if they're otherwise good things. You got some good things in your life that 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 God might be cutting off from you because they're not good for you. He takes the knife to our bad habits. He attacks our prayerlessness by giving us something to pray about. That's called suffering. The father applies the pruning knife to our priorities and and values, and he strips away relationships that would otherwise hinder our faith. I, I, you know, I just that's I ouch like God. Why are you doing that? <coughs> Pruning hurts. And this is to make us fruitful through an increased faith. Um, there's a, there's a warning here, but there's also encouragement. The encouragement of these verses is that we abide as 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 we abide in Jesus, fruit will come. Let's read verse three. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Uh, Verse three and four says, as we abide in Jesus, he'll infuse us with power and we'll produce rich, beautiful fruit in our lives. But here's a challenge, at least in my life, that I I find with this. Um, We don't understand the process. I mean, these words sound good. And, you know, we read the words like, yeah, I kind of sort of want that to happen in my life. But I mean, if this is talking about change, I don't really understand the dynamics of how God is going to bring that about. Um, you know, a lot of times we think the, that change in our life starts with us. If, if something's going to happen to me in a positive way, I, I got to start it. I got I to gotta make it happen. I'm going to will myself to, to change. I'm going to will myself to be different. Unfortunately, um, Scripture helps us to, to realize um, that's not really how change happens. More importantly, if you try to change and you've tried to will yourself to change, you know that you might be able to do that for a little bit of time, but you're going to get tired. You're going to give up um, just out of sheer. Um, I've run out of um, I've run out of enthusiasm in trying to change myself. And so the dynamics of change um, that we go through, uh, the, 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 the scriptures encourage us. Change happens best when we tap into Jesus' power. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. This simply means that the word of God is producing cleansing, a cleansing nature in us. In other words, Scripture acts as an agent on our spiritual change and growth. And then verse 5, I'm not going to read all of verse 5 because we've already read it. He basically says, you can do nothing apart from me. And so, I mean, why even try? Now, when I first read that, I get offended by it. It's like there's a lot of things I can do by myself. I mean, I can I can be very successful by myself. I can I can gain status and title. I can work hard enough to uh, work hard enough and long enough to make a lot of money. I can become famous just doing things by myself in and of myself. And to that, Jesus says, no, you can't. Yes, you can amass a lot of stuff. You can be successful, but those things, um, you can't take those things to the grave. And unfortunately, any amount of success that you have, it has no lasting spiritual eternal value. And so Jesus says, you can do nothing apart from me. Deep lasting change from from our inner being can only come through Jesus. Um, I think 
this is how I live life. I mean, I intellectually believe this. Perhaps you intellectually believe that too. I mean, you read the Bible, you want to trust that it's God's word and that God is not going to tell us a lie, that he's going to be truthful. We agree with the Bible. But here's the thing. Most of us functionally don't live this out. We don't functionally believe it because we have habits. We have things in us that we see that are detrimental to us. We have things about us that we know are not only hurting us, but are hurting the people around us. And we say, Lord, help me change. And when we don't see the change, we might say, yeah, I know the Bible is right and I agree with it, but I don't see how I'm supposed to do that. That's the importance of this passage. Here's a gesture from Jesus. Jesus is he's saying he's going to give up his very life so that we can experience life with him. And so in less than 24 hours, Jesus is going to go. He's going to be arrested. He's going to have uh, three mock trials. He's going to be pinned to a cross and he's going to be uh, he, he's going to be put to death. He's going to lie in a tomb for three whole days. After that, he's by the spirit of God, he's going to be raised from the grave. He'll hang around earth for 40 days or so, mingling with a few people, letting him know that, I mean, I'm alive. The thing that God said is going to happen is going to happen. And then he's going to go to the heavens. And here's the good news. He says the father is the vine dresser. And what the father does from the thing that I do for you while I'm on the earth is that the father forms you into my image. I'm going to die on a cross in your place for your sin, and the Father's going to raise me up so that God will bring you to himself, but more importantly, so that he'll, he'll consistently prune you and form you into my image. And that means change. Jesus gives up everything to make you whole so that you'll produce perfectly beautiful fruit. Um, that, I mean, does that make sense? That makes sense to me. But, I mean, would you agree it, it gets kind of confusing after that? I'm like, all right, so you ain't told me no steps yet. What am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? Um, I mean, we all want this, but we say, what's the process? How do I, how do I actually change? And this is my, this is my thing. Uh, I think the, the, the Bible is true. We all can change. And this is the hope of the gospel, that not only does God want us to change, he provides the means for us to change. I think we should keep in mind, Christian growth is paradoxical. In our world, if we have a problem, we're taught to deal with it ourselves by doing something to make it happen. If you are a person that that deals with anger, this is how we this is how we say you're supposed to get over your anger. Stop being angry. Just fix it. Stop it. Right. I mean, that's that's how we say do it. We just we, we say, all right, pull up your bootstraps, solo bootstraps and just stop being angry. Um, and that's really not how Jesus says we're supposed to, to go through life. Um, if you if you know somebody that's lazy, you say, well, stop being lazy. Get up off the couch and do something. Christian growth is paradoxical. Jesus says, no, that's not how to do it. That's not the way to change. He says in verse five, apart from me, you can do nothing. The way we grow is not by focusing on growing. It's by focusing on Jesus. You don't become more patient by, by, by repeating the mantra. Be more patient. We don't become more loving by waking up and deciding today's that day. I'm going to love the people around me. Well, if you try and do that and it works, let me know. Growth doesn't happen by us trying to fix or attach fruit. Uh, Paul Tripp calls that uh, apple nailing as if 
putting a nice piece of fruit on a tree is going to make the, 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 the fruit any better. How does growth happen? It remains by remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ, and not by focusing on the change itself, by focusing on Jesus. That's what his encouragement is. And here's the paradox. As we focus on Jesus, we actually start to experience change. That's why Jesus says in this text over um, 11 times over, he says, abide. Check it out. Verse four and five. We already read those. But verse six says. Trying to find verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like branches and withers and branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. What is he saying? If you don't if you don't abide in me, you might as well be scrap wood that is of no purpose except for making a fire and making some people warm. In other words, uh, abiding in Jesus saves us from judgment. Verse eight and nine. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. And so verse eight, and nine says that as we abide in 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 Jesus, the father is glorified. Verse 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so abiding in Jesus, in a sense, makes our joy full. We're given more joy. And so the word, I mean, the word abide is it's meant to sound like a kick drum. Y'all saw David here playing the drums this morning. It's like that bass drum. And it's, it's that thing that makes I mean, it's the groove in this passage. And it's saying abide, abide. Abide. That's what Jesus is trying to get over um, to the disciples. So what does it mean to abide? Um, the technical word means to dwell or remain. Just hang around. Jesus is saying, if you hang around, you just dwell in me, then you're going to change. You're going to produce fruit, fruit that will last. Abiding means to cultivate and maintain an interdependence upon Jesus in your daily life. It's, it's staying close to him. And his promise is, is if you do that, you're going to change. Now, that sounds kind of simple, but I would tell you um, it by no means is easy. If you try to change simply by abiding in Jesus, you know, the words sound simple, but it's hard. Um, I, I've never run a marathon, but my wife has. So I could say I've, I've lived through somebody that's run a marathon. <laughs> my wife has run a couple marathons and some trials to go, triathlons to go, go along with that. Um, here's the deal about running the marathon. I don't know this because I've never run one, but I know it because I've, I've been around somebody that's run several. Um, running the marathon is pretty simple. You know what you got to do? You got to run. <laughs> you got to run a lot. I mean, how hard could that be, right? The, the beautiful thing about marathons is you, uh, you get some cool gear. You get to buy some new shoes, probably two or three pairs of shoes. I don't know if we're the norm. <laughs> You get to buy some cool shoes. You get to buy some cool gear, um, some accoutrements for your for your for your efforts. But the, here's the thing about marathons: as you're training for a marathon, that thing takes over your life. Seriously, um, you your whole the whole rhythm of your life changes as you're preparing for a marathon. Your sleep schedule changes. What you eat, when you eat, changes. And the simplicity of a marathon is: you know what you got to do. I got to run. I got to run a lot, at least until my race is over. But the hard part about a marathon is I got to conjure up 
um, the discipline to do all these things surrounding my running so that I'm able to run and endure through this marathon. Here's my contention. The majority of Christians, I, I mean, our lives are marathons. We're, we're, we're living our lives and we want a magical answer for all our problems. We want this pill that's going to that's going to fix everything, like fix my weight loss, fix my money, fix my relationships, fix my attitude. And, I, you know, I've said this to you before, but you know it. That pill doesn't exist. It, it is, it's not out there. Stop looking for it. To grow as a Christian is, is really simple. But like that marathon, it, it really is hard. It takes hard work. You got to think about it. You got to plan it. And you have to have the discipline to, to actually live it out. It takes work, energy and discipline. But, but here's the magic pill. There is a pill. Jesus is offering it to us. He says, abide in me. That's the pill. Cultivate a moment by moment interdependence on on Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us we need to abide in, in two ways in this text. He says, firstly, we need to abide in his word. We need to abide in his word. Verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So there's a couple of things that this verse is not saying. The first is it's not saying God is a genie in a bottle and I just rub it and God's going to give me whatever I ask for. He's not saying that. All right. So don't think he's doing that. Um, he's telling us what it means to abide in his words. Um, this is how my life is. Sometimes I go to the Bible and I look for information where, where, where I'm trying to um, gain stuff, um, knowledge, information about the Bible. But sometimes when we go to the Bible looking for information, um, we treat it like we're trying to pass a test. Right. And then sometimes we go to the Bible for inspiration. I'm in a funk. Um, I just need some help. And I need to pick me up and I'm going to go read the Bible so that the Bible can pick me up. And I would tell you, I go to the Bible like that all the time, probably every day. Um, and it's OK to do that. It's actually cool to read the Bible in those ways. And the Bible will. I mean, the Bible won't let you down. It's going to help you out. But here's what Jesus is saying. If I do that all the time, um, I'm actually not doing what he's telling me to do. I'm not abiding in his word. I'm just trying to gain information or make uh, you know, I'm trying to break up my lollipop, suck it a little bit and make myself feel better. Jesus is offering us something more. He's offering us something deeper. He's saying like, like Colossians 3.16, he's saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And I think what he's suggesting is when we abide in his word, when the word abides in us, it's like meditating on the word. It's like mulling it over in our minds and letting it penetrate from our mind as we think about it into our heart. We memorize it. We, we analyze it. We unpack it so that uh, it becomes a part of us. And, and then when we react to things in life, when life gets hard and we react, you know, I'll, I mean, think about how you react. You're going to react in ways that are kind of natural to you in an emergency. So that when you react in emergency, something happens in the office and, and, you know, everybody's going off. You won't be the person going off when your kids you're having a bad day and your kids are having a worse day and their their worst day is making your day bad. I mean, it, it won't be it, it won't be as bad as it can be because you're the word is dwelling in you richly. You're abiding in the word and the word is abiding in you so that you're able to respond from that. Ingesting the word into your life is what it means to abide in the word. And this is what you want the word to do. You want it to shape you. 
You want it to shape you. Secondly, um, Jesus says this. He says we have to abide in his love. And, and you'll see that the refrain of love really carries on through the rest of this, of this text. Abiding in his word, abiding in his love. Verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruits, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. Uh, this is an overwhelming verse. Uh, Jesus is saying, as the Father has loved me, I'm, I'm loving you that same way. So he wants us to get a grasp of how God has loved us. How does the Bible tell us that God has loved us? It's like this. He loves Jesus eternally. He loves Jesus unconditionally. He loves Jesus completely, unwaveringly, for his ultimate good and all the time. And this is what Jesus is saying. I love you that same way. And this is what this means. It means that there's, there's no good thing that can make God love you more. But this is the better news. There's no bad thing that will make God love you less. God's love for you is, is that full, it's that rich, it's that good news. So when Jesus says, abide in my love, he's not saying we have to work really hard so that he'll keep loving us. He's saying, don't let your minds and your hearts stray away from this kind of truth. Don't move from where you stand positionally with me. Don't lose sight of it all. The reality is, this is easy for us to do, though. And I think, really, um, abiding in and Jesus' word and his love are a challenge for us. And that really is why we, this is why we do this. This is why we have the church. We need both the reminder of God's love, but we also need the challenge of being around other people. And so we gather as a church to be reminded from God's word that God loves us despite our unloveliness. God loves us despite our waywardness, our iniquity. He loves us despite the ways that we don't love him back. And he isn't he isn't um, expecting us to to all of a sudden just wake up and start loving him more. He says, no, I love you as you love as 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 you love my son. I think community groups are important for this as well. As we rub against other people who are along the same journey, then we have the opportunity to uh, to not only hear about God's love um, through them as they're living life, but we we get to experience the love of God as it was intended. Um, the love that God would give us, we give to other people. And that really is one of the, the, the major points of this passage. So that, that really is the parable. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's also a command. And the command b- begins in verse 10. I'm just going to say a couple things about this. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. No longer do, you, do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I called you friends, for all that I have heard from the Father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And so really, just as we noticed the the rhythm of, of Jesus talking about abiding in him and us not having life 
in him unless we abide in the vine. He really says these same things in the same kind of rhythm in regards to uh, the love that we're supposed to have, his, his ceaseless emphasis on love. And the thing to note are, are really uh, three verses, verse 10, verse 12, and verse 17. They repeat this frame, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I've loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you'll love one another. And so the, the emphasis is, is, is a command to love, but there's a reciprocating obedience that comes, that comes out of it. Um, and he repeats that. And you know, sometimes I ask, now, Jesus, why are you repeating yourself here in this text? Because he, he's going to repeat this for the next two chapters in John. So we get to John chapter 17. I think the truth is he repeats stuff like this because we need to hear it. I mean, we're, we're some thick skull, hard hearted people. And whenever you see Jesus repeating himself, he's doing it so that we would, we would remember. One of the reasons why we do communion and, and one of the reasons why Jesus tells us to do communion is because we remember. We remember the good news of, of all that Jesus has done for us. The same thing with, with this idea of love. We forget the richness of, of God's love for us. And so he repeats it so that our hearts will hear it. Another thing, uh, another reason why he repeats this is, is because everything that Jesus has said and everything that he does says does say is summed up in the idea of love. Think about John 3.16. The grace of God comes to us because God loves us. He loves us because he loves us, and he doesn't give any other rationale beyond that. There's no escaping that Jesus stresses a relationship between our obedience to him and our love for him. You know, obedience is the, is the test of our faith. Jesus says, if you love me, you're actually going to be obedient to those things that I've said. And out of a heart of obedience, it's going to produce a love, a love for me as you worship me, but also a love for those people that are around me. And that really is the, the, the point of this text. Jesus is saying a love for him manifests as fruit as love for his people. Jesus wants us to love one another. <laughs> It's crazy. He's saying, he's saying, as you gain love from me, abiding in me, I'm going to pour in you so that there's sap running through you and the fruit that you're going to produce is all kinds of good stuff. But the most important fruit that I want you to have is a love for each other. Why does he say that? Because we're people of affinity. Sometimes we only love those people who are like us. Most of the time, we only love those people who are like us, right? Same age, same generation, same gender gap, same, um, um, not gender gap, I mean, same generation, those kinds of things. Um, y'all remember the Christian fad, WWJD, what would Jesus do? <laughs> it, it's, it's gone, like it came and gone, right? Here's a gist, the gist of that. The idea was all we had to do in any situation was know what Jesus would do, and the call was to do likewise. Um, the truth is, Scripture does not call us to do like, you know, to do those things that Jesus did. It calls us to do as Jesus did. And, uh, and, and the, the major call here is, is, to, is to love. Jesus is calling us not to go to the cross and sacrifice ourselves for the sins of the world. We can't do that. There's some things that Jesus did that we simply can't do. 
what he is calling us to do as he did. What did Jesus do? He loved. He showed us love. He showed us a love um, as a, a shepherd to servants, and yet he gave us the privilege to be called his friend. And that's the same thing. That's the same kind of love that he wants us to show to one another. When it comes to Jesus' love, having been loved by him with so great a redeeming love, a love by which he calls us his friends and ultimately lays down his life, we are to love others in a way that reflects his matchless grace. So I'll conclude with this. How do you know if you're making progress as a Christian? How do you know if you're growing? Jesus says, Christianity is simple. Abide in, my, abide in me, abide in my word, abide in love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the picture that you give us in Scripture of, of this great vine that's tapped into soil. Standing over it is a, a gardener, a vine dresser, who's tending it. And the interesting thing that that vine dresser's doing is He's got a, a huge set of shears out and he's cutting parts of it. He's cutting off actually some pretty good branches, but he's cutting it so that it would be more fruitful. He's cutting away at bad habits and, and, and sins that we're dragging along. He's cutting, up, he's cutting away relationships that are, that are keeping us from, from true worship. He's cutting all those things are, that are on the periphery of, of us uh, worshiping God in, in its fullness. And, and, and the picture that God gives us of, of pruning is that it hurts. And so this, this vine dresser tending to the vine and its branches is a picture of, of, of God tending to us. And, and Lord, that's a picture of suffering in a sense. And we hesitate to say that we welcome it, but we know that we don't grow without it. And so in the, the simplicity of this picture, Lord, I pray for the people who are in this room um, that they would recognize that they're a branch and that I pray that you would connect them to the vine. The vine is Jesus. That we would recognize that we, we get no sap unless we're connected to you and that we don't grow unless the Father prunes us. And so prune us, Lord. Make us like you. But more importantly, make us fruitful. Make us fruitful so that we go out into the world and we love like you loved. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.